Section 5, Chapter 4, Part 1 of The Life and Adventures of Kit Carson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lynn Thompson. The Life and Adventures of Kit Carson by DeWitt C. Peters. Section 5 chapter four part one kit carson and two companions plan a hunt for themselves the great success met with return to taos sale of the beaver fur kit carson joins captain lee and goes on a trading expedition winter quarters kit carson is sent in pursuit of a thief overtakes and is obliged to shoot the runaway property recovered the return to camp the sale of goods. Kit Carson joins Fitzpatrick and party. Kit Carson organizes a hunting party. His encounter with two grizzly bears. The summer rendezvous. Kit Carson joins fifty trappers and goes to the country of the Blackfeet Indians. Annoyances received from these Indians. Winter quarters in 1832. Horses stolen. Kit Carson and eleven men in pursuit. A parley, a fight, Kit Carson severely wounded, his great sufferings and fortitude, his convalescence, the retreat, a new expedition, Brigadocio, Kit Carson fights a duel and wounds his man, duels in the Rocky Mountains in olden times. The fortunes of Gaunt's party in not finding game continued to grow darker and darker as they travelled from stream to stream. The men began to grow disheartened at this succession of failures. Kit Carson, finally, became so tired of going empty-handed that he resolved to try a hunt upon his own account. On stating his intentions to the party, two of his old companions offered to join him. These were gladly accepted by Kit, and, had they not been deterred by the consideration that their dangers would be greatly augmented if they worked with so small a party, Others would most willingly have joined his company. With good wishes, therefore, of Gaunt and his entire band, Kit and his two brave comrades boldly and confidently commenced their march. The plan Kit adopted was to confine his operations exclusively to the mountain streams and not to venture out upon the prairie. By taking this course, he hoped to avoid much of the danger to be apprehended from Indians. Footnote the mountain indians during the summer season generally come down from their secure retreats and are engaged either in hunting buffalo or marching on the warpath when they are at peace with the indians of the plains which is rarely the case they join them and together with their united strength and skill they make piratical excursions into the settlements of the mexicans while out on this business they leave their families in some secluded spot for abundant caution placing them under the guardianship of the old men assisted by some of the younger members of the tribe End of footnote. for several months they followed the business of trapping without being in any way annoyed by the indians their success was abundant at the end of the season they had gathered together a splendid stock of beaver fur and began to think of a homeward trip having made everything ready they finally started for taos True, their party was small, 
and the risks they ran of attacks from hostile and covetous Indians were imminent, but fortune or providence favoured them, and there was finally a satisfactory end to their anxieties, for, after a quick march over the plains, they arrived safely at Taos. Beaver fur was, at the time of their arrival, in great demand, and prices ruled correspondingly high. Kit and his comrades attained the benefit of this state of the market, and disposed of their fine stock to great advantage. The money realized, so far as Kit's two comrades were concerned, was soon expended in fleeting pleasures, and a new outfit for the next trapping expedition which might offer. Kit's former experience had been sufficient on this score, and he had become impressed with the highly important fact that there existed a much wiser course to be pursued. With his characteristic consistency, Kit acted upon this conviction and wisely saved his hard earnings. While remaining at Taos, Kit Carson met with Captain Lee, formerly of the United States Army, but at this time a partner of Bent and St. Vrain, two names as familiarly known to the mountaineers as the household words of their boyhood days. Captain Lee was purchasing goods for the purpose of trading with and supplying the trappers. He desired Kit Carson to join in his enterprise, and made him an offer which was accepted. In the latter part of October 1832, with their goods well packed and properly fitted for the rough transportation which they must necessarily be subjected to, they set out to find the trappers. They travelled for some distance on a route well known as the Old Spanish Trail. This is nothing more than a mule path which leads from New Mexico to California. Having arrived safely at White River, they continued their march downstream, following the windings of the river until they came to Green River. Green River they forded, and then struck across the country for the Winty River, which is a branch of the Green River. Here they found Mr. Robidoux, who had a party of twenty men in his employ, and who was engaged both in trapping and trading according as opportunity presented itself. Soon after these parties met, snow began to fall, indicating the approach of the cold season. A mutual understanding having been arrived at, the two parties joined together and began to establish winter quarters suitable for the whole. They selected a site for their permanent camp on the Winty River at its mouth, where the men made themselves as comfortable as possible under such circumstances. They were provided with skin lodges, so common among the Indians of America, and which, according to Kit's mountaineer experience, are very comfortable substitutes for houses. During the winter, Mr. Robidoux lost six of his most valuable and highly prized horses in the following manner. Attached to the camp, there was a California Indian, who was employed by Mr. Robidoux, a keen and shrewd savage, and one whose acquaintance with the trappers had enabled him to gain the confidence of Mr. Robidoux. He was also an expert with the rifle, and possessed undoubted courage with great bodily strength and activity. These qualifications made him a troublesome customer in a skirmish. This Indian's education on the score of property rights had not been as well attended to as the methods of attack and defence in the chase, or on the warpath. By some, not strange, personal argument, he concluded to appropriate the six valuable horses above mentioned, in the law-wordy vocabulary of civilization, to his own use, benefit, and behoof, 
without asking the consent goodwill approbation permission and personal directions of the said owner to wit mr robidoux as these horses were worth even at that remote spot on the great american continent the just and full sum of two hundred dollars each making a round sum total of twelve hundred dollars mr robidoux was not content to pocket the loss or much less to allow the rascal to enjoy ill-gotten wealth on the principle that stolen fruit is sweet he determined if possible to show him that some stolen fruit is bitter knowing kit carson's reputation for skill and his fearless disposition as soon as he had discovered his loss he came and requested him to pursue the indian kit carson is a man who never works without orders except when he is leader and therefore informed captain lee of mr robidoux's request and asked permission to serve his friend this as a matter of course was readily granted by captain lee when kit instantly made his preparation for the adventure he was very soon on horseback well armed and well prepared for hard and close work there chanced nearby to the camp to be an indian village belonging to the utah tribe the whites were on friendly terms with the inhabitants of this village which determined carson to seek out from among other warriors one active and intelligent brave and get him to join in the chase this was the more easily accomplished as carson's reputation for skill courage and experience was already well known in this tribe he himself had made a large circle of acquaintance among the braves and many of them had become strongly attached to him some of these attachments have existed for years and are still maintained for a fact well known the american indian warrior as a general rule is true and unchangeable in his friendships with this object in view carson putting his horse to his speed started for the utah village on making his errand known to such of the braves as enjoyed his confidence he found no difficulty in engaging a well-known warrior and one on whom he knew he could rely to accompany him the wily savage was soon ready for the march when kit gave the word to start both men were splendidly mounted their pace was that of no sluggard the high-conditioned animals which they rode seemed to catch the eager spirit of their masters and entering into it bent themselves to their work with determination accordingly to discover the trail of the deserter and to study its various characteristics a science of no mean or useless order in the matter of a woodman's education required the two men to slacken their pace for a short time the tracks made by the stolen animals however were well marked and to such practised eyes afforded a certain indication as to their route after putting their horses to their speed with compressed lips and eyes directed to the trail before them carson and the indian warrior dashed on feeling confident that if the rascal escaped with his ill-gotten booty the sin would not be laid upon their shoulders the trail led down the green river this fact made carson conclude that california was the destination aimed at in the deserter's calculations kit and his indian brave had accomplished about one hundred miles having not once lost sight of the trail when most unfortunately for kit the horse of the indian was suddenly taken sick and his strength gave out completely the indian could go no further except on foot and this mode of travel he was unwilling to adopt refusing absolutely carson's request made to him to do so this was an unpleasant predicament especially as the rascal who formed the chase 
was a dangerous antagonist even to an experienced fighter and in an honest cause goaded on by the fear of punishment for theft carson well knew that he would require all of his own address to purchase success for the rascal would not fail to make a most desperate resistance but kit carson's courage arose as the difficulties of the adventure seemed to multiply with a farewell word to his indian companion he put spurs to his horse and entered boldly upon the trail alone being determined to run every hazard which the unhappy accident to the indian's horse seemed to require at his hands the spectacle here presented to the reader is one which exhibits kit carson in his true character both as a faithful and earnest friend and a determined and dangerous adversary such is his character a life of most singular events has never yet found him false to his friend or his manhood while he is not rash in judgment he is consummately skilful quick and brave onward he dashed never for an instant taking his eagle eye from the tracks which formed his compass think not that such tracks are easily traced none but a practised and ready eye can follow them to any advantageous end to trace them even at a snail's pace for an unpractised eye is like the child's putting pen and ink to paper through his first copy-book of penmanship many and many an awful blot and horribly crooked line will doubtless carry the simile fully and strikingly to the mind but the result which crowned kit's effort showed conclusively that notwithstanding he had followed the trail for over one hundred and thirty miles he had made no blots or crooked lines at the distance of thirty miles from the place where he parted with his indian companion kit discovered the chase his pace now became tremendous the wily savage had descried him almost at the same instant that he was discovered by kit and instantly prepared for a desperate encounter with this object in view the savage turned to seek a cover from whence he could fire upon his adversary and reload long before he should himself become exposed to a shot the rascal's plan was good enough but he was too slow in its execution to overcome kit's activity kit had unslung his rifle as soon as he saw the enemy anticipating the object of the savage he instantly covered him with his rifle his horse was now at full speed and he was rapidly nearing the indian at the moment he discovered that the indian had reached his cover and before he could take advantage of it without relaxing his horse's speed he fired the ball from carson's rifle was so well directed that the indian as it struck him gave one bound and then fell dead in his tracks at the same instant the rascal's rifle went off with a sharp report sending a bullet whizzing at some distance from the line of carson's approach the fact of the indian's rifle being fired at all is a sufficient explanation of what was his intent had his career not been so suddenly cut short thereby preventing its fulfilment the words of an old trapper are here very much to the point the author was on a fitting occasion questioning him in regard to kit carson's capabilities with the rifle said he if a man has a serious quarrel with kit carson he had better not let him get the first sight over his rifle for if he succeeds in this his adversary is as good as dead an intimate acquaintance and tried friendship with kit carson has since then repeatedly furnished occasions which have confirmed this trapper's statement although in the first instance a person will find it no easy task to render an altercation necessary 
for Kit Carson holds his passions fully under control, and besides, they are of a very conciliatory type. No man will sooner shun a difficulty when justice, honour and necessity do not warrant strife. The work of collecting the horses was soon accomplished, when Carson immediately commenced his journey back to the camp. This he reached in safety after overcoming a few minor difficulties caused by his charge, and had the satisfaction of returning the six horses to Mr. Robidoux in as good condition as they were the night on which they were stolen, and also of informing him that there was one rascal less in the world to prey upon honest people. This event served to interrupt the monotony and routine of winter camp duty, affording a basis for many a long yarn during the evening hours around the campfires. These trappers, especially whenever a green-eyed bundle of curiosity chances to seek their company, can spin yarns most wondrous. The habits of the beaver and their remarkable instinct form a fit subject for their active imagination. It would doubtless add very much to the interest of these pages if we could set down a few of these anecdotes and tales for the general reader, but the task would be hopeless as to its accomplishment. To give them life and reality, they require all the surroundings of time, place, and occasion. There should be the dark night, the wild whistling wind, the shaking tent with its coverings of skin, the roasted venison, bear's meat or horse flesh, the rifle standing in the corners, the lamp of bear's grease, in fine, all the similitude of camp life. Then the wild stories of bear fightings, beaver intelligence, Indian deviltry, and hairbreadth escapes become intensely real. The auditor hangs upon every word which falls from the lips of the supposed sage orator with eager earnestness, while curiosity never becomes satisfied. Ah, Jones, that is a whopper! Sure as I live, but the beaver slept every night with the trapper, and in the daytime, if he left the tent, the beaver would fall to work and make a dam across the floor of the tent, using the chist, skins, arms, and everything. Oh, Jones! But I tell you it is true. Tame a beaver once, and you'll find as telling a plain statement as true as ever a padre made. Padre, who'd believe a Mexican priest? Mr. Jones, that tame beaver of yours must have been born in the States, where he hadn't trees and mud to build dams with, and had to resort to furniture. That beaver, responded Jones, was as near like a human being as any man present. How'd you make that out, Mr. Jones? Why, one day his master died. Well, they tried all they could do to console the beaver, but twa'n't no use. He wouldn't be consoled. All he did was get an old shoe belonging to his master, and if he didn't haul that ere shoe around day after day wherever he went, well, the beaver began to grow thin, and one night they found he was a dying, just from starving himself to death and hugging the old shoe. Oh, Jones, said the greenhorn, you don't expect I'll swallow all that yarn. But Mr. Jones and all of the other trappers present preserved an imperturbable dignity of mien, as if the very reference to the animal mentioned demanded from them all due reverence. Well, but that was not doing as a human being would do. I never seen a man carry an old shoe around till he died from starving. That is neither here nor there, continued Mr. Jones. It was when the trapper first made the beaver's acquaintance that he showed he knew as much as a human critter. All that time he had one wife and lived with her all alone in a hole side of the dam. They had two sons and a daughter. 
The daughter the old beaver had married to a fine-looking young beaver who lived t'other side of the dam. The whistle which the neophyte here gave seemed to give great dissatisfaction to all of the trappers present. One of them quietly asked him, Is that the way, youngster, you's been educated in politeness of manners? If it is, I know a beaver who can learn you something. In the first place, if a young beaver ever comes into the presence of the oldens, especially if she's, that is, the oldens, a female beaver, the young un immediately fetches his right forepaw up to his forehead, just hind the right eyebrow, and makes a reverential bow of ceremony and salute. I seen that uh, oftener than you've put one leg ahead of t'other yet, young un. The trappers present all confirmed the truth of this statement by a solemn nod of assent to the query. Ain't that true, gentlemen? which at least served to prevent unceremonious whistling. It is thus that we might go on and fill page after page with this picture talk of the trappers. Some of their yarns are pretty tightly strained, and most of them contain a capital hit and are usually founded on the facts. It is a well-authenticated fact that the beaver has but one mate, and that they live together a loving couple as if husband and wife. As to their liaisons, coquetry, flirting, and so forth, Doubtless the society in some parts of the human family will bear a faithful resemblance in these respects also. As an example of industry, the world will look in vain for a better one than is afforded by the little beaver of the western rivers. Look at them patiently felling the tallest tree, and so nicely adjusting their fall and calculating their height, that they strike the opposite bank of their stream gaining a fixed and permanent lodgment. It is thus that the wonderful little creatures will often erect dams across wide rivers and effectually stop the rushing torrents. As has appeared after collecting the six horses, Kit Carson returned with them safely into camp. A few days subsequent to this occurrence, a band of trappers belonging to another party en route entered the camp. These men reported that Fitzpatrick and Bridger were encamped on Snake River, distant about fifteen days' journey. This was too good news for Captain Lee and Kit to warrant their remaining any longer idle. They doubted not, but they should be able to dispose of their goods to these parties. With this object in view, they prepared for the march and started. Their journey, although perilous and laborious, was successfully accomplished. Messrs. Fitzpatrick and Bridger received and entertained them very hospitably and purchased their entire stock, paying therefore in beaver fur. Kit Carson then joined Fitzpatrick's band, but remained with it only one month. His reason for separating from it was that there were too many men congregated together either to accomplish much or to make the general result profitable in the distribution. He accordingly arranged an enterprise upon his own account, and from his well-established reputation found more men than he wanted ready to join him. From those who applied, he selected but three, these were men of the best material, and no man could judge a trapper's qualifications better than Kit Carson. With his three men, he immediately set out for the Laramie River. On this stream and its tributaries he spent the summer. Perhaps our readers will look for a full description of the course which the American trapper pursues in order to catch beaver. It is very simple in its detail, but difficult and tedious in its application. The trap is the common steel trap made in the usual form. If there is any difference, it is larger and more powerful. It is set in the haunts of the beaver, with a particular kind of bait known chiefly among trappers. Footnote. Animalium patris testiculum. 
End of footnote. It is a singular fact that frequently old beavers will be discovered springing the traps by the aid of a stick. If discovered at his work, he seems to enjoy hugely the vexation of the trappers which they sometimes exhibit. An old trapper, however, especially if he be a Frenchman or Mexican, feels so much pride in the matter that he will cover up his vexation under assumed politeness as if the beaver could understand and appreciate his language. But to escape from these pleasing digressions, Kit Carson and his men concluded their summer's work with unusual success. Their exertions had been crowned with rewards which surpassed their fondest anticipations. As the wintry months were again fast coming on, Kit and his men determined to rejoin Bridger's command. The return trip was therefore commenced and duly prosecuted. Late one afternoon, just after the little party had gone into camp, Kit, having lingered somewhat behind, suddenly rode into the campground and leaped from his horse, giving it in care of one of the men. With his rifle he then started in pursuit of game for supper. He walked on about one mile from the camp and there came upon fresh tracks of some elk. Following up the trail he discovered the game grazing on the side of a hill. In the neighborhood of the animals there were some low and craggy pine trees. Moving along with great care, he finally gained the cover of the trees, which brought him in close proximity to the elk, and within certain range of his rifle. This care was the more necessary, as his party had been without meat diet for some time, and began to be greatly in need thereof. These ever-wary animals saw, or scented him, or at any rate became conscious of approaching danger from some cause, before he could reach the spot from which he desired to take his aim. They had commenced moving, and in another instant would have bounded away, out of all reach of his rifle. His eye and peace, however, were too quick for them, for bringing his piece into position, and without dwelling upon his aim, he sped a bullet after the largest and the fattest of the noble game before him. He had wisely allowed for the first leap, for his shot caught the nimble animal in mid-air, and brought him to the earth, writhing in his death agony, with a fearful wound through the heart and lungs, from which there was no escape. One quiver ran through the frame of the beautiful animal, when he breathed his last. The echoing sound of the rifle-shot had hardly died away, to which the true hunter ever listens with unfeigned pleasure, as the sweetest of music on his ear. Whenever he has seen that his game is surely within his grasp, the last faint melody was broken in upon, and completely lost in a terrific roar from the woods, directly behind him. Instantly turning his head to note the source of this sound, the meaning and cause of which he well knew by his experienced woodman's ear, educated until its nicety, was truly wonderful, he saw two huge and terribly angry grizzly bears. As his eye first rested upon these unwelcome guests, they were bounding towards him, their eyes flashing fiery passion, their pearly teeth glittering with eagerness to mangle his flesh, and their monstrous forearms hung with sharp, bony claws, ready and anxious to hug his body in a close and most loving embrace. There was not much time for Kit to scratch his head and cogitate. In fact, one instant spent in thought, then, would have proved his death warrant without hope of a reprieve. Messrs. Bruin evidently considered their domain most unjustly intruded upon. The gentle elk and deer, mayhap, were their dancing boys and girls, 
and like many a petty king in savage land they may have dined late and were now enjoying a scenic treat of their ballet troupe at all events kit required no second thought to perceive that the monarchs of the american forest were unappeasably angry and were fast nearing him with mighty stride dropping his rifle the little leaden bullet of which would now have been worth to him its weight in gold if it could by some magic wand have been transformed from the heart of the elk back into its breech he bounded from his position in close imitation of the elk but with better success the trees he hoped and prayed as he fairly flew over the ground with the bears hot in chase for one quick grasp at a sturdy sapling by good fortune or special providence his hope or prayer was answered grasping a lower limb he swung his body up into the first tier of branches just as passing bruin brushed against one of his legs bears climb trees and kit carson was not ignorant of the fact instantly drawing his keen-edged hunting knife he cut away for dear life at a thick short branch the knife and his energy conquered the cutting just as messrs bruin had gathered themselves up for an assent a proceeding on their part to which mr carson would not give assent mr carson was well acquainted with the messrs bruin's pride in and extreme consideration for their noses a few sharp raps made with the severed branch upon the noses of the ascending bears while they fairly made them to howl with pain and rage caused them hastily to beat a retreat this scene of ascending getting their noses tickled and again descending howling with pain and rage now kept mr carson and messrs bruin actively busy for some time the huge monsters and monarchs of the mountains were determined not to give it up such a full and fair chase and to be beaten by a simple white man on their own domain this evidently galled their sensitive natures it is true the roaring of the bears in his rear had stimulated mr carson in the race so much so that he undoubtedly ran at the top of his speed and being naturally as well as by long practice very fleet of foot he had managed to outstrip his pursuers in the race it is true he had made short work of climbing the tree and here again had very innocently beaten the bears at their own game and one in which they took great pride it is more than probable that the bears were in too good condition to run well had it been early springtime they would doubtless have been much lower in flesh that was their own fault too they should have known that racing time cannot be made on high condition after leaving their hibernating quarters they should have been less given to a sumptuous habit at the table affairs were however by no manner of means settled they had the daring trespasser on their domain treed and almost within their reach and indeed to keep out of the way of their uncomely claws kit was obliged to gather himself up in the smallest possible space and cling to the topmost boughs the bears now allowed themselves a short respite for breathing during which they gave vent to their wrath by many shrill screeches then they renewed their endeavours to force the hunter from his resting-place mounted on their hind paws they would reach for him but the blows with the stick applied freely to their noses would make them desist in vain did they exhaust every means to force the man to descend he was not to be driven or coaxed the hard knocks they had sustained upon their noses had now aroused them almost to madness together they made one desperate effort to tear kit from the tree as in all their previous attempts they were foiled 
and their ardour dampened and cooled by the drumming operations upon their noses, which this time was so freely and strongly applied upon one of them as to make him lacrimate and cry out with pain. One at a time they departed, but it was not until they had been out of sight and hearing for some time that Kit considered it safe to venture down from the tree, when he hastened to regain and immediately to reload his rifle. End of section 5, chapter 4, part 1